if you could start something tomorrow, my answer would be it's very individualized, but just pick one thing and start small and then know why you're picking the one thing. Pick something that really speaks to you that you know exactly why you want to do it. And then just one small step because one small step through time creates a habit. And then once you have that down as a habit, you pick the next small thing. And then before you know it, you are, you know, just through that, your positive habits are, are living a very, a very healthy life and a life that is nurturing to your mental, physical, and spiritual health. The pod class is in session. I'm your host, Elizabeth Tingle, and welcome to our series, Conversations on School Health, a holistic look at maximizing the health and well-being of students and teachers. This series is a collaboration between the Workland School of Education at the University of Calgary and EverActive Schools. Each episode, we speak with a different leader in their field about topics that impact student and teacher well-being. Today, we're joined by Lisa Bush, who has worked as a teacher and as an admin in the school context and recently wrote the book, Teaching Well, How Healthy Empowered Teachers Lead to Thriving Successful Classrooms. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you so much for having me. So we have decided to offer this content by podcast, partially so that people can take advantage of the auditory method of communication and do double duty so that while you're learning, you can also get out and get some exercise or maybe catch up on some chores or get your craft on, whatever it is that would make you feel a little better today. I always like to start by asking guests, because wellness is so individual, what they have learned works well for them to take care of their well-being. So I wonder, Lisa, if you could share the habits that you've learned help you to stay at your best, which may or may not be podcast compatible. What works for you to take care of yourself? Well, sure, Elizabeth. I'll speak to three things that I'm leaning heavily on right now. Something I'm doing almost daily is I'm going for long walks outside Mm -hmm. while listening to my favorite podcast. And for me, it's so important because it allows me just to kind of step away, to get fresh air, to get out, to get exercise, and then to listen to something that I'm currently passionate about. So if you're listening, feel (laughs) free to put on earbuds, get outside, get some fresh air, and take us with you as you go. So the movement, the daily movements, one. Another one And I think this is so important for teachers at all stages of their career is I'm trying to stay in tune with how I'm feeling physically and mentally. Mm -hmm. And this seems so obvious. (laughs) It's like, well, what do you mean stay in tune? But it's so difficult. And when we're in the classroom and we're going a mile a minute and suddenly it's four o'clock and we have a headache and our shoulders are tense and we realized, oh, I haven't drank water all day or, oh, I haven't sat down and, and eaten since 10 this morning in between class changes or, or whatever. And tapping into my emotions and how am I feeling and what do I need? Do I need to just step away for a minute? Do I need to sit down and eat something? So that is something that I'm, I'm, again, I'm leaning on right now, but I think everyone going into teaching can, can carry that with them. Mm-hmm. And then the last one is sleep. And the more I'm learning about 
the science behind sleep and sleep's effect on emotional regulation and sleep's effect on willpower, uh, sleep's effect on learning, sleep's effect on long-term memory. The more I'm understanding that sleep is not an option, it's not like a luxury, but getting your full required sleep is it's just essential to, to living, you know, your optimum life. So I have a nighttime routine that's pretty well nailed. And some days I have to like hard shut off my phone around seven or eight so I can start preparing myself for like a really good night's sleep. But that's kind of the third wellness routine that I'm really working on right now. Those are all so important and things that have come up a little bit in the podcast before, especially about sleep and remembering to move. But I think that point about paying attention to just your physical and mental well-being during the day as a teacher is really vital. You have to take care of yourself throughout the day. Absolutely. Tell us a little bit about your background and why you have come to be so passionate about teacher wellness. My background is I've been in different areas of education for 16 years. I started teaching in the States, in the public school system there, but I've also worked in universities. I've done all sorts of work, but mostly public school system. I've taught grades from elementary up through grade nine. I haven't ventured into high school. So that, that's a little bit about my, my background. So the story I'd like to share with you was when I was teaching in Canada and I became pregnant with my daughter. Mm -hmm. And at the time I was teaching grade seven, grade eight, grade nine language arts in a congregated gifted setting. And my marking load was impossible. Mm -hmm. And as anyone knows who has gone through a pregnancy before, you're energy just simply is not working at 110%. And so, no. <laughs> yeah, depending on, you know, different experience. But I had learned enough at the time early on, like I just needed to ask for help. And so I was wise enough to go to the English language arts consultant, to meet with teachers, to read every book I could get my hands on. And then that was kind of the catalyst for writing the book, Teaching Well. I like that you reached out for help and you made yourself a priority to take charge of a situation that felt like too much for you. I think that's a common experience that as adults we will face. We will get into moments that feel like, I'm not sure if I, if I can do all of this. And that's when we have to look around, look at different ways of doing things and look for people to support us. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. And you know what, Elizabeth, I would like to point out that I was considered like a veteran teacher, mm -hmm. an expert teacher. And it was interesting because I was way more comfortable then walking across the hallway to the grade nine language arts teacher or sending an email out to our consultants to say, hey, meet with me. And I think that that is often a first or second year teacher mistake is to mm -hmm. think that oh, I can't ask for help. I need to appear like I know what I'm doing or I need to appear like I'm in control. And I think it's actually the opposite. Like people love to help. Teachers, that's what we do. They love to share their thoughts with you. And the reception and the feedback that I received was so positive. So ask for help at any stage in your career. Absolutely. One of the best things about being a teacher is that you get to spend lots of time with teachers. They are nice people. And if you show an attitude of being willing to learn from someone, 
they are almost always very generous and willing to share. So I think that's a really good point that ironically, when we first start out, we feel like we don't want to show that we have to learn new things when really that's when we need to learn the most. But I think all of us benefit from trying to figure out how to do this well. I think we often in our culture have a very narrow interpretation of health. It's usually focused on just physical well-being. I appreciated the very broad vision of wellness that you set forth in your book, Teaching Well. Can you explain what you think wellness means? What are we talking about when we discuss teacher well-being? Yeah, well, interestingly enough, Elizabeth, when Pembroke Publisher first asked for me to write this book on overall general wellness, I was like, sure, absolutely. Like I consider myself a writer. I would love to do this. And then I went and Googled wellness because <laughs> I was <laughs> like, mm, let's make sure we're all on the same page. And it was kind of what I was thinking, but it's defined by Merriam-Webster dictionary as the quality or state of being in good health, especially as an actively sought goal. And I thought, well, this is this is perfect because if you are teaching in the 21st century, your health is going to have to be an actively sought goal. It is not going to accidentally happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like you are yeah. not going to get to the end of June mm-hmm. and be like, wow, I'm really regulated, emotionally adjusted, rested. And how did that happen? Like you are going to have to plan, (laughs) schedule, be intentional with it. But the more I study wellness, the more that I talk to teachers and women and individuals about wellness is that it looks different from everyone. And I love, there's a quote by Richard Wagamese that says, teachings come from everywhere. Mm. And so I want to say, you know, kind of towards the beginning of the podcast is that wellness, depending on who's listening to it, it is going to look different from you. But it's basically all aspects that contribute to your good health. So this could be physical, this could be mental, this could be spiritual. And interestingly enough, I kind of kept the spiritual aspect out of the book, but it's one that I'm learning is is so key. It's really this multifaceted, complex topic that's so much more than just self-care. It's it's a lifestyle. I think that's so important that it's multidimensional, that it's purposeful, and that it's so individual. All of those things I think are really key to keep in mind when we're talking about wellness. In the comprehensive school health framework, the intention is to create an environment or a school culture where everyone, including teachers, can feel well. Why do you think it's important that we make sure to prioritize teacher well-being? School health promotion often focuses on students. Why do you think it's vital that teachers are also on the list? I think it's essential. Mm. Like it's not something like maybe you want to consider prioritizing. It's like if you want a healthy school, you have to. I've worked at so many schools where we would have staff meeting after staff meeting about student anxiety. Mm -hmm or student mental health. And then I looked around at the staff, myself included, and we were exhausted. Mm -hmm. And our anxiety was through the roof. And that was while I was kind of writing my book. And I, I was really keyed into it. And I thought, well, how can we emotionally regulate our class? How can we be this calm, anchored voice for our students if our own minds are very anxious and unsettled. So 
One of the stories I often tell that I started keying into this was when I was first teaching in the States earlier on in my career, and I was an art specialist in an elementary school. So all the grade three classes would cycle through my art room a few times a week, all the grade fours, all the grade fives. And my first year of teaching, I started noticing something. I started noticing that the third grade teacher who was fun, sarcastic, kind of cheeky, but really into teamwork, her students, my first year of teaching them art, like they were a fun class. They were always telling like knock, knock jokes. They were, you know, pretty roll with the punches type group. And I thought, huh, that's kind of interesting. And then there was a grade four class and the teacher was one of the most kindest, compassionate, just gentle spirits I've ever met. But she was kind of all over the place, you know, kind of like your your typical like artistic mind. And and her room was a bit of a hot mess. <laughs> and, you know, she always had her glasses on her head and she was losing her glasses. And then when her students came and showed up, they were never in a line and their shirts were untucked and half of them, their shoelaces were untied. But they were they were like always just such calm, generous, Mm. compassionate students. And then there was a grade five teacher who was very orderly and very methodical and very type A and her students were that way. And I noticed that my first year there and I thought, oh, well, that's a coincidence. I noticed it my second year. Mm. I noticed it (laughs) my third year. And it occurred to me, our students mimic our priorities and our emotions. Mm And, and I was just doing my walking slash podcast listening this summer. And I love Brene Brown's podcast, Unlocking Us. And I was listening to it. And she was talking about how now the latest neuroscience is actually confirming that there's a neuron in our brain that mimics the emotions of the people that we're around. So now it's scientifically proven that there's something embedded within our brain that we mimic that. So when when we go back to your question, why is it important to prioritize teacher well-being? And I say, well, it's essential is because you cannot have students that are calm, that are ready to learn, that feel like they're in a safe space if you have a teacher that's on edge. That's such an interesting perspective that you had being able to see all of the different classes kind of get a sampling of the different classes at a school and to see what essentially are those mirror neurons at work that, you know, students pick up on what the teacher is emitting. And I love that you focused in on the positive things that those students were picking up from their teachers, because of course it works the other way that if we're stressed, that our students will be stressed. But we need to also remember that if we're calm and if we're kind and if we're humorous, that they will begin to pick up and feel comfortable expressing those things in themselves too. I think that's such a good way to frame it, that wellness is contagious. And if we make it a priority, our students will pick up on that. Yeah. And may I jump in with just one final story? Because I think it will really speak to the first year teachers. Mm -hmm. And it's similar, but recently there was a first year teacher in grade one and Elizabeth, her class was the most complex class I think I've ever seen in my teaching career Mm -hmm. as far as the needs of the students. So first year teacher, her area of expertise was not elementary school. It was high school. So her cards were stacked against her from day one, but this teacher was a gentle spirit. Mm -hmm. You know, she naturally was inclined to smile 
she was so calm. She would call me <laughs> at the end of the day. I would speak with her and she did everything that we're talking about. We'll talk a little bit mm-hmm. more later about like prioritizing and not, and things didn't have to be perfect. Well, Elizabeth, her classroom wasn't perfect. It was in a, a state of controlled chaos, much like my office usually is. And by the end of the year, I think simply because of her constant calm, her positive attitude. Now she did work. She was a first year teacher, Mm -hmm. right? But she took care of herself. It was transformative, that class. Like it was such a beautiful thing to see. And I spoke to her about it at the end of the year. And I was like, I am shocked at the difference you have made in the lives of these students and you have made collectively in this class simply through your calm. So this is not a touchy-feely optional type subject. It really is a powerful force if we can tap into it well. Oh, that's such a great example for people to hear that you can thrive even in difficult situations, even in your first year of teaching. You know, it's about what are you prioritizing? Let's talk about the basics. So what are the daily habits that can help teachers to feel well? You mentioned a few of these when we first started, but what about these daily habits and how can we make them stick? Sure. Yep. So these are the ones that I mentioned in my book, Teaching Well. So the first one I've already spoken to, and it's interesting, it's preparing for a good night's sleep. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of time we think, oh, I'm just going to sleep seven to eight hours and that's the end of it, but it's actually dimming the lights putting your screens away, having some herbal tea, picking up a book, doing what you need to do so that when you're actually ready to go to bed, your body is in a state of calm and rest. Yes. So the preparation for a good night's sleep is key. One thing that's interesting is the stress management because I broke it down into kind of two categories. So we have our daily stresses. We have just the meltdowns that happen in our classroom or the parent email or the long staff meeting or whatever, right? Just just the little things that happen on a day-to-day basis. And so we need daily self-care mm-hmm. to just kind of decompress, to release the stress of the day daily. This is not like you can schedule a once a month type retreat. This is every single day, whether it's just reading a novel for a few minutes at the end of the day, whether it's going for a walk, you you decide what fits you, but daily self-care to release your daily stress. Mm -hmm. But the other one is to recognize if you have unmanageable stress, if you're carrying around something that you just feel like you can't diffuse through daily self-care, please go reach out, see a therapist, see a counselor and get professional help. My big mission in life is to normalize therapy. So that's the second one is manage stress. The third one and the fourth one go hand in hand and they are so important. It's put nutrients in your body Mm -hmm. and put nutrients in your body throughout the day. So nutrient dense foods. I mean, even if you're scrambling some almonds, some cheeses, and then stay hydrated. So just bring a 36 ounce water bottle, put lemons in it if you want, something that makes it taste good to you and just drink it throughout the day. Such good tips and really important to keep those front of mind because of course there will be other things that will take our attention, but we need that as a foundation. Mm -hmm. 
One of the things that I really liked in your book were your strategies for time management. So I wonder if we could talk about those a bit. What are the logistical strategies that helped you to manage your time better as a teacher? So this is something that I learned as a mom to young children. And this is something I think a lot of teachers, when they become parents, learn. But I would like to say, please, if you are single, if you have no kids, give yourself permission to do the same. And that is setting a very specific schedule for when you're staying at work and when you're walking out the door as soon as you're contractually able to. So I'll kind of, I'll give you an idea. So when I went back to work after having my daughter, I realized that if I continued the same pre-children's schedule, I would never see my daughter. Like (laughs) I was going to school usually before she was awake. My husband would take her to daycare. And then I was used to working until 536, five afternoons a week, maybe then going to the gym, getting home, having a late dinner. And I thought my kid's going to be like 14 before I ever see him. So I realized it was essential to have a plan for when am I staying and marking? When am I walking out the door? And what I've done and what more and more teachers are doing as they're wisening up, they're not taking anything home with them. Because I thought when I'm home, I want to be present. I want to be present with my husband, with my family. So what I would do, Elizabeth, is I picked two days a week. And the schedule looks different for everyone. But I picked two days a week where I would stay late. And, you know, maybe a a late night Monday, a late night Tuesday. But then guess what? Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, I was walking out the door at 3.15. And I was taking no work home over the weekends and little to no work over the holidays. Another teacher that I collaborated with frequently She was the primary caregiver, so she was out the door most days between 3.30 and 4, but she would come in every Saturday and work. And she was an introvert, and she loved to step away. You know, she had spent quality time with her kids Monday through Friday. Saturday, the kids were with their father. She came in on Saturday. But this is something I think that if young teachers or teachers new Mm -hmm. to the teaching profession can pick up from day one, like this would be a saving grace because what it does is it teaches you to prioritize, Mm -hmm. to be super efficient with what has to get done. And then what can I set aside? I'm going to throw this out there too, Elizabeth, is there's a big stigma Mm -hmm. on walking out the door. I think we give ourselves that stigma. I think, you know, for a long time, I thought, oh, it's rude because schools are social. Healthy schools are social. And so I could easily sit at school five days a week until five o'clock simply chatting with teachers. And so it really takes discipline. And I go through like the last class of the day, I would start packing up my bag. (laughs) I would have my desk cleaned off. If I had one or two tasks at the end of the day, when the bell rang, I would do those one or two tasks. And then I would pick up my bag and I would go out the side door. I wouldn't even walk to the front door (laughs) because I knew I would, it would be an hour. It would be an hour added to my walk because I would stop and I would see how this teacher was doing, but just getting out of there. And I don't think anyone ever judges. No, everyone knows. Right. So, yeah. So anyway, so that, that scheduling is, is really important. It's about the voice inside your head that's maybe thinking, oh, should I stay longer? I think there is no judgment about that, but it it takes some confidence to feel comfortable doing that and saying, I'm going. <laughs> I'll talk to you later. 
Well, yes, absolutely. And when you have self-care time scheduled in, so let's say it's your day that you're walking out at 315 and you're going to go for a good run, or you're walking out at 315 because you've had a lot going on. You might've had an emotional week outside of school and you're going to go home and sit on the sofa Mm -hmm. and read a book. (laughs) That when you have that scheduled, that self-care time is a a valid thing. Mm -hmm. Like it's an appointment you've made with yourself. And so when someone says, hey, do you have a minute? please feel free to say, oh, I'm sorry, I have something scheduled. Can we meet tomorrow morning? Or I will be here on Wednesday late. Can we meet then? That is a, I call it a sacred and holy time. Like that is something that's real. So don't let an email, don't let a, hey, do you have a moment Mm -hmm. pull you from that? Because if you do that, then you'll never, you'll never get the self-care time that you need. Absolutely. And I do want to say before we move on, I love the idea of setting aside certain days for marking. I'm a language arts teacher too. So I know about those long marking hours. And I think the idea of just setting aside certain days for it would make it also feel less constant. I think when you have a large marking load, it feels like you're never on top of it. And so to say, these are my marking days. And when those days are done, I'm done. And until the next period, I think that would be so good for my mental well-being on those other days to, to not feel this nagging guilt that I should be marking to be able to say, nope, my marking days are coming up and I'll focus then. Well, and Elizabeth, the students love it because when they would say, Miss Bush, have you marked our essay? I could say, no, I haven't. But this Thursday is my marking day. Mm-hmm. It's the day that I'll stay and I'll do all my marking. So you should have it on Friday as opposed to Miss Bush, have you graded my essay? And you're like, oh, not yet. You know, <laughs> I'm drowning in it. But they they were like, oh, okay. And so they, they have that very specific feedback that, no, it might take a week, but you will get it on this day. So I found it helpful. Like the students appreciated it as well. So important. So how can a teacher possibly shift a culture in their schools to accommodate teachers' need for well-being? How can we make it more socially acceptable to put our needs on the list? You've mentioned that it's not always baked into the culture. So what do you think are some ways that we can kind of shift the culture? Okay, well, just a, a few things. Bring your wellness into the school. And it sounds so obvious, but like if you love jogging, start a jogging club with the students. One teacher was really into yoga and she brought in a parent who was a yoga and Pilates instructor and she did yoga with the teachers every Tuesday and Thursday after school. And just bring in your passions and and speak to them. One administrator was doing like a 30-day movement challenge. And so she just put up a optional chart in the staff room that if you want to sign up, you can sign up and then put a gold star every day you move. And it seems so little Mm -hmm. and basic, but just sharing with what you're doing, it adds to this culture of, like I call it positive peer pressure. (laughs) Yeah. So you're like, hey, I'm taking the kids jogging. When one teacher started that, I had never really had an interest in jogging, but I was like, oh, can I join your jogging club? Like it was for students, (laughs) but I was like, I want to do that. So it it can have such a strong ripple effect. And then I am going to throw this out there because I don't think that it's talked about. And I don't think it's said is that in, I'm speaking to Calgary because that's where, you know, we're both located in Calgary. There are so many schools 
you drive every, you know, four blocks and you're at a new school. So I think my other piece of advice with the school culture is if you're at a school that just isn't fitting with you, mm-hmm. if you're at a school that you're like, mm, I am just not liking the vibe or the culture, please do not feel obligated to just stay in that school because that's what you know. Like explore, try different options and and give yourself permission, you know, to say this isn't really working for me. So those would kind of be my my two key pieces of advice. That's such a good point. And you've actually brought up something that I interviewed Scott Bailey from Everactive Schools, and he talked about that idea of teachers building in wellness in the day, possibly with students for activities that they're kind of interested in or would do anyway, like try and make it part of what you're contributing to the school, because then it's win-win for everyone. And then the other idea that you've touched on that I think is really important is how portable teaching is as a credential. You've talked about how you've moved around, you know, from country to country, but within a city, you can move from even within a district or to a different district. And sometimes a relocation to a school can really shift things and invigorate you. So I think that's a good thing to remember and interesting to connect it with wellness. But I think I really like that. So it can be difficult to change a school culture if you do land in a school where maybe wellness isn't prioritized just yet. But there are some things that we have more direct control over as a teacher. And I like that in your book, you emphasize those. You dedicate an entire chapter to the benefits of collaboration. Can you talk a little more about the connection between collaborating with colleagues and our own well-being? I mean, the benefits of collaboration are really infinite, but it's something that I would just start right away. So it will look different depending on the school that you're located in and depending on your teaching assignment. But let's say, for example, you're a grade four teacher in a relatively large school and there are two other grade four teachers. Get together as a grade four team and figure out like, how do you want your year to look? And I have to say, we just did this in the States. (laughs) Like you didn't have one teacher usually teaching, you know, six or seven subjects. So I was a little surprised when I came here and I thought that is a lot of work, Mm. but I've seen with really strong teams here in Canada, um, in elementary, they do that. So you have one grade four teacher that's like, well, I'll take on the science. Mm -hmm. And so they teach the four different classes of science. And then one will take on the language arts, the math and so on. And so you're taking off 75% of your core prep work. Yeah. And I just, I don't understand why you wouldn't make best friends right away <laughs> with whoever is in in your pod, whoever is in your grade level. From a middle school perspective, it's it's different because you know you don't have control. You can't just move kids in and out of your classroom. It's like this magical Rubik's cube scheduling mm-hmm. for middle school and high school. But when I came and started teaching English language arts for the first time, I was very much a seasoned teacher, but I had never taught English language arts. So I was teaching grade seven and eight. And then there was another teacher right down the hall that was teaching grade seven and eight and a teacher across the hall that was teaching grade nine. Well, guess who I was spending my evenings (laughs) and weekends with? And, you know, again, it's the practical aspect in that, I mean, I was cutting my time in half. I was taking a lot of their material, but then I think too, that feeling of solidarity Mm -hmm. and the feeling of, I'm not just sitting there staring at a blank computer screen 
trying to write something from scratch that I'm brainstorming and we're collaborating. And if something doesn't work, it was really kind of interesting with the grade seven teacher. He might teach a lesson that we had just created the class before me and he would come running into my (laughs) classroom and he would be like, don't do it. It didn't, (laughs) it didn't work out. Like retreat, retreat, like change it. Or we would brainstorm with the grade nine teacher. You know, I would say, oh gosh, I'm trying to do this independent reading routine that we've set up, but this isn't working. And she'd be like, what? Why are you doing it that way? Try Mm -hmm. it this way. Again, there's the practical part of just shaving off your planning and shaving off the work you have to do. But then I think that emotional connection is really irreplaceable as well. Yeah. Being part of a team. I learned so much from my colleagues of not just activities and assessments, but philosophies of teaching and how to handle those difficult moments. I think if you're collaborating, it opens up the space to have those conversations that are so meaningful for your own just professional development as a teacher. Mm -hmm. Another thing that we have a lot of choice in as teachers are the learning activities we plan and how we assess student learning. I told you that I am a language arts teacher by training, and my first year of teaching, um, I was doing high school English, and the marking was overwhelming in the evenings and weekends and holidays. It was just always following me, this pile of essays. And actually, my first year, my colleagues gave me a customized rubber stamp that said, a lot is two words, (laughs) because they knew that I would be writing that all the time. And sure enough, I did. And as I was reading your book, I really reevaluated this practice of marking and asked myself some hard questions like, what is the point of this? And is this actually benefiting student learning? Because it's sure taking a lot of my time. So I would love to talk in detail about some of your strategies for looking at assessment a little bit differently. Yeah, well, I think that there is kind of a divide that's happening in real time as we're speaking right now in education. And one is how we've always done it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and and this is how I'm going to teach because this is how I was taught. And this is how most of the teachers around me might be teaching. And then I think there's this constant new information that we're learning about how the brain actually works and how we actually learn as humans. And those are often directly conflicting. So I'll I'll speak to that in a minute. I'll try to get back on a more practical level. But one thing that I talked about in my books were treadmill assignments. Mm -hmm. And that was the idea that So I was, just to give context, I was teaching in a congregated gifted program. And if you've ever worked with gifted children, like the one thing that you do not want to happen in that environment is boredom. Like Mm. that is like, no, don't let that happen. (laughs) They, as a general rule, when it's something they're interested in, they take it in, they thrive on it and then give me more, you know, they're, they're, they're sponges as all kids are. The same could apply also to a grade one classroom. Uh, You don't want a lot of downtime there either. So I was seeing myself as a really competent and capable teacher by having this constant list of deadlines. Mm -hmm. And I actually had it like a legit list on my whiteboard in red, you know, this is due Friday, this is due next Tuesday. And I had very little discipline issues <laughs> because it was it was usually work that they connected with and they were enjoying and self-directed, but it was exhausting me because it was like your essays due 
Friday and then next week you have a book report and then on and on and on. And so they're treadmill essays because as soon as you throw them out, they get thrown back to you. And what took the kids a week to do was taking me two and a half weeks to mark. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, this is ridiculous because number one, it, it was exhausting me. But even number two, the kids weren't working as hard as I was. Hmm. They would throw together an essay. I would say, read over it, correct your mistakes, and then they'd throw it back to me. And then I would spend, and I'm sure you can relate, hours giving them feedback. And then they'd glance at the feedback. (laughs) And then half the time they'd walk out and the essay would be like lying on the floor (laughs) under their desk. Yes. And I would be that teacher that chased them down the hall, like, you loved your essay. And they don't care. There's a grade on it. It's done. Yeah. So what I started realizing was better for me. And if you look at the neuroscience and how the brain works, and if you look at authentic teaching, better for the students, was what I call teaching well assignments. So these are assignments where instead of, let's say, writing an essay that covers a very limited amount of outcomes, they write an essay that requires research, that requires opinion, Mm -hmm. um, and you're taking a variety of different outcomes, maybe double or triple. And then you're also giving the students, instead of a week to do it, you're giving them a month. Mm -hmm. And it involves all different levels of feedback in class. Feedback is something I really tapped into. Self-editing, peer editing, revision a first time, revision a second time. And so by the time it got to me, number one, it was this beautiful polished piece of work. But number two, because I was able to change the way I taught and it was more student-centered, less teacher-centered, I was sitting with the students. I knew what their thesis statement was. I knew what their details and persuasive language was like because I was literally sitting side by side with them during the month-long process. And so by the time it got to me, they needed very little feedback, but I also had a really good idea of where they were before I even picked up the, the essay. So that's my teaching well assignment. So you can do this with, with anyone. It would look different for early elementary. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't probably want to spend a month, but there's so many teachers in early elementary that are doing similar to that, you know, repetitive practices. That's more about the student having authentic learning than completing an assignment and turning it in. Yeah, when I read this, I thought this is brilliant, this sort of workshop model and almost trying to figure out how most of the students work and your work can happen during that class time. And there are so many benefits to that, namely that, you know, there's less time for you to mark is one, but also I feel like if you're there along the way as the student is crafting and revising and working on this essay. They're less likely to feel overwhelmed and maybe, I don't know if you had issues with plagiarism. It felt like it came up a lot with me and my students. They're less likely to try and find a shortcut if they know that they've got that support to write in class with you there and with students giving feedback as well to just give everyone a little more time to make sure that assignment is where it should be. I never in my teaching career have had someone look at my marking book and say, is that enough essays? Like nobody ever cares about that. But I think this idea of the treadmill that we think because we need something to do as an activity in class, it has to be something that I take home. And so then you're just constantly assigning and marking and assigning and marking instead of focusing on 
learning, teaching and learning, which is really the goal. This is a fundamental shift that I think we need to make. Not everything has to be marked. Can you share some of your favorite no grade learning activities that still promote a lot of learning? So it's it's good for the students, but it doesn't mean it's something that you have to take home and necessarily mark. Yes, absolutely. So one thing that I learned was that students actually need more feedback mm-hmm. than what we're giving them. And I know that sounds contradictory, but I'll explain. So one thing I started trying to do was giving them regular quizzes Mm -hmm. that were no stakes quizzes. And this was inspired by the book, Make It Stick. It's the science of successful learning. Mm -hmm. And just kind of a a side note, this is a scientific book. This is not a (laughs) teaching book. It's written by scientists. It is not specifically directed towards teaching, but it was pretty key in changing how I approached my teaching. So the act of having to retrieve information, and they call it effortful retrieval. So you're sitting, you're staring at a blank sheet of paper, you have to figure out the solution, you have to, as a student, have to come up with the answer. That is so important to learning. And it actually embeds information in our memory Mm -hmm. and makes it what they call durable. So durable learning is when students take something and they'll be able to remember it for long periods of time, and they'll be able to manipulate it and apply it to new situations, which is what we would consider like higher level thinking, Mm -hmm. right? So you can take a concept you've studied here and apply it in all different disciplines. Like this is, this is what we ultimately want our kids to do is to remember it long-term and apply it to new situations in innovative and creative ways. But in order to do this, they need effortful retrieval. So that ultimately is quizzes. But here was the really cool part that I remember I like sat up and I was like, why has no one told me this? While they need feedback, yes, you did get this question correct, or no, this question is not correct, and let me explain to you why. Assigning a grade to the quizzes, and they did this in a very controlled long-term study in the States, assigning a grade to the quizzes has zero impact on the students' learning. Mm. Zero, Elizabeth, (laughs) zero, none. It made no difference to the students at all. And these were, I think, middle school students in the States. So the cool thing about teaching older students, and I think I actually have started talking to my grade one daughter about neuroscience and and how it works. I think you you could adjust it, but I would treat no stakes quizzes just like you would treat a regular quiz. So I'd say, clear your desks, put your phones down, silence, get out a pencil. No one could talk, but they knew exactly why they were doing it. Mm -hmm. They knew it wasn't for a grade. They knew about durable understanding. They knew about effortful retrieval. So that has been a huge one. And I've seen this in a grade seven and eight math classroom. One of what I would consider a master math teacher, she would start every class with five quick questions. And they were not for a grade. So students came in, it was silent. She'd have five quick math quick math problems like kids could do in five minutes. And that's daily effortful retrieval. So these are the types of things, kind of one of the the key things that I I started doing. And also you can do this in a form of a Mm pretest. So before you even start to teach a concept, you could do this in any subject, give a pretest. And even it's been proven. See, now you have me talking about brain science. So (laughs) I get all excited. (laughs) When students have to wrestle with a problem that they haven't been taught how to solve. So whether that's a math problem, whether it's a language arts question, a social studies or science, when they do receive that information, 
the likeliness of them remembering it and turning it into durable learning is, is higher. So pre-tests. And again, my students knew exactly what they were doing. It was for my assessment. It was for their own self-learning. It was never taken as a, as a grade. So these are all things that you could start from day one doing. And you would mark the no-stakes quizzes in class and talk about them? Is that like you sort of go over the answers as a group? Is that how you would handle it? Absolutely. And the students mark their own. Yeah. And another really neat thing, and this is something teachers will love, is delayed feedback. Mm -hmm. So you do not mark the same day. You could mark two days later. You could mark three days later is actually part of the learning system. So, I, And then you know I use that in my my favor when they said, are our essays graded? I said, no, but I'm giving you delayed feedback and that's going to actually make it more meaningful. So these are all the really cool things that I don't think most education courses, at least when I was in school, it, it certainly wasn't covered. So, I loved your hands down pencil up suggestion, the idea, and this is, you know, something that we do often as teachers, but I liked your twist on it. So asking people to write down an answer to a question and circulating and giving them some time. And then as you walk around the room, ask a student to share a particularly insightful answer and ideally a quiet student who might not normally raise his or her hand. I think that's so wise because often when we just ask a question verbally, it's only a handful of students that respond. But this way, everyone's participating and then you as the teacher are finding the student that might not offer on their own something that you think should be shared. I thought that was such a great idea. Yes. Yeah. I saw a teacher I follow on social media posted something last week and she says, we have microwaves and we have slow cookers in our classroom. <laughs> yeah. And some of the kids are microwaves and they have the answer right away, but many, and I was, I was a slow cooker. They just require that time. So it just gives everyone an opportunity yep, to share. Yeah. As you've transitioned from the more traditional way of doing assignments to these teaching well assignments that are covering multiple outcomes and you're trying to do more in class and less marking outside of class, what have you noticed both in your own life, but also in your students as you've changed this way that you assess? Well, I think it's like, it's like wellness that when you change the way that you're assessing, it just, it was a, a ripple effect. So I noticed the energy in my classroom. I could feel my students thinking. Mm-hmm. You know, you walk into some classrooms and there's almost a palpable buzz. There's a buzz in the classroom. My students were working hard, but it was a positive energy because I gave them time during class and it was a big switch. It was, we're all in this. It was a growth mindset. Like we're all in this. None of us are perfect writers. None of us are perfect, whatever. We're all going through the process together. My own energy at the end of the day was like it never had been. I think it was just a healthier environment. The learning was deeper Mm -hmm. that was happening and the learning was more long lasting. And to kind of give you an idea of my perception of things versus what was really happening was I had an element of guilt because I would go three weeks with not a single thing to mark. And it came back to me during parent teacher conferences where I thought, oh, you know, I'm pregnant. I'm not doing half the stuff I used to do with the kids. I'm going for long periods of time without marking what's going to happen. And I have to say they were like the most positive 
grateful, thankful parent-teacher conferences I've ever had in my life. Like the parents were like, my son or daughter loves your class. The work you do is amazing. So again, it's just shifting our mindset to giving ourselves permission that this is really what is best for the kids. It's what's best for the learning and it's what's best for us. So letting, letting that guilt go. Yeah, because teachers often have high standards for themselves. How do you think we can alter our expectations to protect our well-being but still be effective as teachers? That is a very good question. It's one I've I've struggled with. And what's really helped me is when I was sitting at my desk at 3 o'clock or 4 o'clock or 5 o'clock working on whatever task that I had deemed in my own head important, So the font on this PowerPoint has to be perfect or my bulletin board has to be perfect. What I would do is I would actually say to myself, stop being selfish. Mm. You're doing this to prove to yourself that you're able to think about the 28 kids that are walking into your classroom tomorrow morning at 8.05. What do they want? What do they want? And they want a happy, smiling, welcoming, authentic teacher. I'm not talking about the fake, I got four hours of sleep, but I'm going to pretend until noon and then everything's going to unravel. I mean, like they want a fun teacher. Like that's when I think about my middle school teachers that were artists and writers and had these full lives outside the classroom. And that's when I'm like, you're being selfish, get your bag, go to the gym, go run on the treadmill, have a nice meal and be the teacher that your students need at 8.05 tomorrow morning. So just shifting it from your own need for perfection to what your students actually need from you would be kind of my recommendation. Good advice. So you know that teaching is busy and complex. What would you say to teachers who feel like there isn't enough time to make some of the changes that we've talked about, whether it's prioritizing their well-being or changing all the ways that they assess or trying to find a mentor or collaborate with others? What would you say to the person who's maybe resistant? (laughs) I'd say you have to. (laughs) It's not an option. If you want a healthy, well-adjusted classroom, if you want students that love to learn and are thriving and they feel safe and supported, you have to. Yeah. And if you don't know how to, that's fine. Ask. You have to make the space, but you don't have to know how. That's okay. Just knowing you have to and then asking for help is is what I would say. So what is something that a teacher could start doing tomorrow to take better care of themselves? Yes. Well, I love this question because this is the heart of it. So if you could start something tomorrow, my answer would be it's very individualized, but just pick one thing and start small. And then know why you're picking the one thing. Pick something that really speaks to you that you know exactly why you want to do it. And then just one small step because one small step through time creates a habit. And then once you have that down as a habit, you pick the next small thing. And then before you know it, you are, you know, just through that, your positive habits are are living a very, a very healthy life in a life that is nurturing to your mental, physical, and spiritual health. Absolutely. Lastly, do you have any recommended resources for teachers who want to learn more about ways to thrive? You've mentioned some resources in our discussion and also your book, of course, Teaching Well, but is there anything else that you would recommend? Yes. So one that kind of blew my mind with assessment was Star Stackstein's 
Hacking Assessment, 10 Ways to Go Gradeless in a Traditional Grade School. Mm. So this talks about actually going gradeless, but the philosophy is what kind of influenced me with a lot of the changes that I did. A book I really appreciated was Dan Tricorico's Sanctuaries, Self-Care Secrets for Stressed Out Teachers. This book is super practical, very small things you can do to make a big impact. Go online. There's such a huge following on Instagram and on Twitter, but just follow the people that are right for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you so much, Lisa, for taking time to share your wisdom on pursuing wellness and the concrete ways that we can make that happen as teachers. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks again for joining us for another Conversation on School Health, a series collaboration between the Workland School of Education and Everactive Schools. Thanks to Matthew Wood for composing and performing the theme music, and a special thank you to Stephen Hurley from Voice Ed Radio for production assistance and sound editing. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at EverActiveAB, on Facebook at Everactive Schools, or visit our website everactive.org for more great content and resources. Until next time, the podcast is dismissed. Thank you.